If we've not met yet, my name is Peter Boyer. I'm one of the elders here at Halifax Christian. And I want to I test this idea that it's not what you know, but who you know. Just imagine right now as I get on a plane, fly down to Washington, uh, go to the White House, check, make sure that President Trump was in, uh, and get to the front gate and, uh, and, and just expect to get in. They'll say, well, you can't get in. I'll say, but I know him. Well, do you? I said, of course. Like, I've been watching, you know, the, I'm a Canadian. I watch the news every night. He's on the news every night. Every night he's on the news. I'm hearing him say things all the time. I really know this guy. And they would say, yeah, but does he know you? And, of course, the conversation would end right there. So when we say it's not what you know but who you know, we actually understand that what we really mean, it's not what you know, it's not who you know, but it's who knows you. Now, most of the time, that, that's, it's a good thing for people to know us. Not, not always. I remember when I was about two years old in, uh, in school, or grade two, sorry, grade two, I was running down the stairs one day, and I heard this voice from the top of the stairs, Peter, stop running. And I looked up, and it was the principal. And my friend who was next to me said, the principal knows your name. See, in the school I grew up in, that, that really wasn't good if the principal knew your name. It really, 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 really wasn't good if the vice principal knew your name. But that's a whole different story. Um, there, are places, there are places in Halifax, you know, maybe nice nightclubs or something, and if you don't get there early enough to get in the lineup, you may be in a bit of lineup. And if you want to get in earlier, you may want to try and, you know, jump the line, go to the front of the queue, and go to the guy that's on the front door who will always be bigger than you and say, you know, I'd like to get in. And he, he goes, yeah, we'll get in line. And you'll say, yeah, but I'm, I'm here with one of my friends. I'm, I'm here with Queen Elizabeth. Can I get in? And, uh, and, you know, that might get you into the club. There are some really nice places. I don't know if they're in Halifax, but I know there are a few in Toronto that if you go to the club, you try to do that same thing, get to the front of the line. You're going to have to say, no, I'm, I'm not here with the Queen. I'm here with uh, Robert Borden. Uh, and that might get you into the club. And there may be some cases where that just doesn't get you in at all. Who you know is one thing, but who knows you is another. Really, really uh, funny story um, told by a man named E.P. Taylor. For those that are uh, not, not old enough to remember him, E.P. Taylor was a Canadian tycoon. Uh, he was a philanthropist. He was probably one of the greatest breeders of racehorses in history. Um, and he told this very funny story back in, the, in I think, the 60s, early 70s. He was in, uh, in a very nice restaurant this one night having dinner. And this guy came up to him and said, uh, Hi, my, Mr. Taylor, my name is Bob. I'm going to be uh, having, entertaining one of my, my, my clients very soon, business clients very soon, and I really want to impress him that, you know, that, that we know each other. He said, so it would mean the world to me if, if before you leave, if you just stop by the table and, and just said, Hi, Bob, how you doing? How's the wife and kids? It would just mean the world to me. And so E.P. Taylor said, Sure. So the guy's having his dinner with his business client. A little later on in the dinner, E.P. Taylor walks up and he goes, he goes, Bob, how you doing? How's the wife and kids? And Bob looks up and he goes, Taylor, will you quit bugging me? I'm here with an important client. True story. E.P. Taylor said it was one of the funniest things that ever had. He thought it was great. I think he actually wished him well, hoped that it worked. Um, I have a little video clip. Um, it's, it's from one of my favorite Christmas movies. It's uh, from a movie called Jingle All the Way. And here's the setup. There's this kid who really wants this action hero of his favorite superhero, and, and the action figure is called Turbo Man. And there's a parade where a, a Turbo Man doll, a special edition Turbo Man doll, is going to be given out to one of the kids uh, on the route to the parade. What this boy doesn't know that in this particular story is that through weird circumstances of events, 
his father ends up in the suit on the float acting as Turbo Man. Watch this clip. That clip never gets old for me. The passage of Scripture that I want us to look at today is from near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's arguably, for many Christians, one of the most challenging and disturbing passages, perhaps, of all the things that Jesus said. Powerful sermon, this Sermon on the Mount. And in the end of this message, he proclaims a number of warnings. He, he talks about, you know, that, uh, that, that, that wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction. Small is the gate and narrow is the path that leads to life. He talks about the evil of, uh, of false prophets and false teachers. Beware of them. He talks about what's going to happen to those who are not fruitful in their life. And then he comes to the following words. And I want us to look at these words together. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I was uh, having a chat with my sister. She's a missionary over in Europe. I was having a chat with her yesterday, and she, she asked me, what are you preaching on? And I, I told her I was pat- preaching on this passage, and her email response back was, ooh. <laughs> you see, because many Christians, whether they want to admit it openly or not, wonder whether they fall into this category. We can serve Christ for a year, a decade, 50 years, and there will always be that lingering doubt in our minds. Have, have I crossed some kind of a line? Do I fall into this category? I've done all kinds of things for him. I, I've, you know, I've served in the church. I've, I, I've, I've, I've fed people. I've done amazing things for him by the world standards. But is there a risk of me facing him on that day? And instead of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, instead I'm going to hear the words, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. This is a concern that a lot of Christians have. And, and what I want to do is I want to I unpack this a little bit. There is so much in here to talk about. We just don't have the time. And as I have reflected on this passage for over 40 years as a Christian, I just want to, I want to show you where I have settled on my understanding on this passage. And it's really driven by the final words there. And so this is a one-point sermon. I'm going to take just his final statement and I just want to look at that because I think it actually provides the context, the deep context to understand this entire passage. It's when he says, away from me, you evildoers. Okay. How is it possible for Jesus, who Scripture says is God incarnate, how is it possible for him to say to someone, I never knew you? I mean, we have, we have Proverbs 15, 15.3 that says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. If he really is omnipresent, he's everywhere, he sees everything. It's not possible for, for God to actually say, I never knew you, because he knows everybody. So maybe, maybe that's, not, that's not the context. Um, in Matthew 30, Jesus himself, talking about God, says, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows everything about you. He, know, he knows the makeup of, of everything inside of you because he made you. So it can't be that he doesn't know you in detail. There must be another meaning. There must be something else. When he says, I never knew you, this must mean something else. And so this is where we have to do a bit of digging. There's a difference between Bible reading and Bible studying. And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to, I'm going to do something that pastors love to do. 
Sunday mornings is to like to, to show you what's in the Greek language here, what, what's actually going on in the original language. And I don't always like to do that kind of thing. It's not about showing people what you know, but it's actually critical here to understanding because the word that is translated here, knew, when he says, I never knew you, this is not head knowledge. This is not the word that the, that the ancient Greeks would use for head knowledge. This is actually the kind of knowledge you have about another person. The intimacy you would have with that person would dictate how well you know them. It's one thing to know about them. I could probably go through the congregation here and rattle off the majority of your names. I might be able to talk about you know where you live. I know where you live. I might, I might say I know who your spouse is or I know who your siblings are. I might know a little bit about where you work. I might know a lot of facts. But unless we've spent time together, I wouldn't actually know you. And, and so this is the context that Jesus is using this word, not about what you know up here, but about the knowing of somebody by spending time with them uh, in relationship. That's probably what this means. So when he says, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers, is it possible he's saying, I've never had a relationship with you while you lived, so why would you want one with me now? Keep that in mind. Um, Spending time with Jesus is what changes people. This is what transforms people. And let me, let me just give you a couple of examples. So from the Gospel of Mark, this is the passage where Jesus is actually handpicking the 12 apostles who are going to follow him. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called, him, uh, called to him those uh, who he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. It would be so easy to be tempted to just get right to the end. He's calling these guys so that they're going to preach and, and, and cast out demons and do miracles. It might be easy to, to rush to the end of that and see what he's asking them to do. But I think we miss the context when we go past the words, he called them to be with him. These guys were a cut above the rest just because of the sheer amount of time that they spent with him. A couple of years he spent in close relationship with them. They lived together. You really don't get to know somebody until you live with somebody. Amen? You can, you can say you know somebody, but have somebody come and spend a couple of days with you. You get to know them better. Have them spend a week with you. You get to know them better. Have your mother-in-law come and spend three months with you. You really, really, really get to know this person a whole lot better. And so it's by spending time in close proximity we get to find out all the little idiosyncrasies, the little nuances, the little things that might bug us or maybe that bug them. This is, this is what Jesus is talking about. So he spends time with these guys, and it was his presence with them that ultimately allowed them to be able to do the things that he wanted them to do. After Jesus had left, this is, uh, the next one is from Acts chapter 4. Here we have a couple of these guys who grew up as fishermen when Jesus called them, and now they're in front of the Sanhedrin. So this is the, the, the ruling court in Judaism. They're the overseers of the temple, and these are well-educated guys, and look at what they say. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They recognized that being in the presence of Jesus is what made these men who they were now. And you might say, well, if they would have recognized that, why wouldn't they have realized then that their path, their way was actually wrong? But that's a whole different thing when you get into the, the mind and the heart of, the, of, of power brokers. Their, their world is so important to them, they will do everything to defend it, even when all the evidence around them tells them that it's a sham or it's wrong because there's something in it for them. And even consider toward the end of, uh, of Jesus' life in that final supper when he did the, uh, 
he did that humble thing and he washed the feet of his disciples. The apostle Peter said, this is, this is too humbling. You're the master. You can't wash my feet. I, I, have, to, I have to wash your feet. And Jesus said, unless, unless you let me do this for you, you can have no part in me. And of course, then Peter, the way Peter likes to do, he just blurts things out. He goes, well, then, then wash my, my hands and my head as well. What these guys were learning in those final hours that Jesus was with them is that unless we allow Jesus to serve us, we really can't have a relationship with him. And isn't that really true? The best way to get to know somebody is not to be served by them, but to serve them. Because in order to serve them well, you have to know what it is that they need, what it is they want, what it is that they need. And the only way that's possible is to get to know them very, very, very deeply, to see what's past maybe sometimes the things that they say so that you can actually reach into their life and meet their needs. This requires an awful lot of vulnerability, an awful lot of intimacy. So we've, we've, we've declared here many times on a Sunday morning from this stage, um, Christianity is not about religion, it's about relationship. And I'm setting up the argument here that this entire passage here is about our relationship with Jesus. It's not the only thing, but it's founded on that. You might say, well then, is that, is that really the gospel? Is that all there is to the gospel, is just having a relationship with Jesus? And of course the answer is no, there's more details to that. And so let me just take a moment here, kind of a, a brief commercial break in the middle, to just remind you of what the gospel of Jesus is. So when Jesus himself came, first thing he said is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He declared that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the reason he was able to declare that is because he was the one who was bringing heaven to earth. He is the Christ of God. He is the chosen one of God. He's the one that God chose to bring heaven and earth together so that things could start to, well, people could get a glimpse of what things were supposed to be like way back in the Garden of Eden before we screwed up. And so we then see Jesus living his life for us and then dying for us, for our sins. And finally, the last of the, I would say, the declarative statements of, of the gospel is that he rose again. He rose again so that we would no longer be victims to sin and death. We would no longer be bound to sin and death. We would no longer be held captive by sin and death. Those are the declarative statements of the gospel. In terms of the imperative statements of the gospel, okay, now what do we have to do to respond to that? We have to believe that, that he is the Christ of God. We have to repent. Jesus came, the first thing he said is, I've come to preach repentance, to turn away, turn away from the life that is not focused on God but then once you've turned to God, it isn't just a matter of enough to believe in God, but you also have to believe in Jesus. You have to believe in me, he said, that I am the one from God. And then finally, as Jesus invited those guys to follow him and then told them as he was leaving to do the same to others, we must follow Jesus. It's in this last, this, this last thing, this seventh thing, where we find the context here because having a relationship with Jesus is part of the following him. There's a whole lot more to the gospel than just the relationship. But it starts with God's desire for a relationship with us, which is why he did those things. And then it follows through with us following him and learning to grow in that relationship. Right? Things grow. We, we, we get to know each other as we grow. Relationships are, are messy, um, but we grow in those. We get to know him, each other better. We get to know him better. The point, of, the point of my message is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of details to the idea of what it means to follow him. You look anywhere in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul oftentimes will give almost a laundry list of here are the things that you must do and that you must not do if you are following Jesus. 
And you might want to look at those things and say, those must be the kind of things that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, only those who do the will of my Father will get into heaven. Maybe that's, maybe that's exactly what he was, he was talking about. Maybe, maybe there's more to it. Maybe there's a whole lot more. I didn't tell, uh, I didn't tell the people back in the booth, but I wanted, to, I wanted to change things up a little bit here in the order of my slides. I want you to go back, uh, if you can, uh, Sammy, back to the slide that's Proverbs 15.3. Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. There is nothing that you can do, there is nothing that I can do that will surprise him. He knows everything. And you say, well then, why would he, why would he even care about a relationship with us? Why would that matter to him? Here's the reason it matters. is because the only way that he knows that we can trust him is if we make ourselves vulnerable to him. If we are going to follow Jesus, it isn't just about an intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel facts, I believe. The Lord's brother James himself said in the book of James, that's great that you believe. Even the demons believe. And if we read the gospel accounts, whenever Jesus showed up in their redeemer's presence, they were the first ones to openly declare that he's the son of God, he's the Christ. And they knew that it wasn't going to go well for them. But it's not going to go well for them. So declaring belief in him and knowing the facts and the truth is not enough. So it's not just about here. It's about having that relationship. It's about being vulnerable. The only way you can get to know somebody very deeply is for you to open up your heart. Now, my wife and I, we we do a lot of uh, coaching and counseling together. She's a professional counselor. I pretend to be one, but I'm I'm not really a counselor. I'm a discipler. Uh, But we work with a lot of couples. We work with a lot of people uh, in this particular area. And it's, it's always fascinating, you know, sometimes when you ask, when you ask couples who are struggling, you'll say, you know, in terms of percentages, how would you, how would you declare a marriage? You know, would you, is 50-50? And they'll, m- most people will often say, absolutely, 50-50. The perfect marriage is 50-50? They'll say perfect marriage is 50-50. And then in a very gentle way, Debbie will say, then that's why you're here today, because you think that a perfect marriage is 50-50. No, divorce is 50-50. A perfect marriage uh, as a good starting point, is 100-100. I give everything, you give everything. But in the context of the Christian spirit, in the spirit of God living out a Christian marriage, an absolutely perfect marriage is 100-0. I give you 100 and I expect nothing in return. It's in that context that we understand that in order for a relationship to be the strongest possible, we have to open our hearts to let the other person in. In this case, that other person is God himself, Jesus. We have to open up ourselves, let him see what is inside of us so that he can show us what he sees and then together we can work on those things. Yes, we have to be vulnerable and that's messy and most times we don't want to do that. But if we want to have that kind of relationship, that's the only way it's possible. Let's come back to that Greek word which I didn't tell you what it was. Someone in the first service after afterwards they asked me, what's that Greek word? You ask me afterwards, it's not that important for this. What's important is, what does that word really mean? So I told you it's about relationship, deep relationship. Well, it's interesting that this word is actually the word used by ancient Greeks. The ancient Hebrews had their similar word, 
that it's, the, it's used by the ancient Greeks to actually be a euphemism for sexual intercourse, which leads us to an expression that many of you may have already heard, you know, that these two people knew each other in the biblical sense. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It might, it might make you blush for me to stand here and say, while many of you know my wife Debbie, only I have known my wife Debbie. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And it's okay to chuckle. For those who are here who are too young, well, you just grew up a little bit. But this is the context. This is the word that Jesus is using. Unless, unless we have that kind of intimate relationship, you and I, we can't have a part with each other. And it's not something that's just perfect overnight. I mean, God is perfect, but we aren't. We have to grow into this. And so Debbie and I have been married about 37, 38 years. We're getting, we're getting close to number 38 We've been married already long enough that we don't just finish each other's sentences. She actually will start my sentence before I even start to say it. Freaks me out a little bit. Um, we know what each other wants. We know what each other needs. We know by the look on the other person's face what they're feeling. That only comes by just spending an inordinate amount of time together just so we get that sense, so that our hearts are connected, so that we know but when I say it's still a work in progress, it's still progressive, she still will do and say things that surprise me. I love that because that means that there's more for me to explore, to explore in the world of Debbie. Everything about Debbie is not yet known by me, and it's good for her for me to know. So it's only in the last couple of years that I finally clued in. She actually really, really does like getting flowers. She doesn't just say that. She actually really does like getting flowers. Who knew? And all the men would go, yeah, who knew? And all the women are going, seriously, guys? Duh. This is the context of this word. So when you see this passage of Scripture, before you start to analyze yourself and go, oh, am I, am I guilty of this? Am I, have I done <coughs> some amazing things <coughs> for God? But then worry that, He's going to say this to me, you know, away from me, you evildoer, because I never knew you. Just start with the question at the end. What is my relationship with him like? Is there an intimacy? Is it a growing intimacy? And if it's like any other relationship in the history of all relationships, it's not just like this. It's up and down, it's up and down. But as long as the overall trend is this way, this is exactly what he's wanting from us. King David had such a relationship with God. Um, God didn't just know the number of hairs in his head when he was awake, when he was asleep. If you actually read, I think, Psalm 139, he actually declares, because he's a poet, he's, he's writing wonderful lyrics. He actually declares that God knows my thoughts before I, before I even think them. But from, from God's perspective, that could still be just kind of head knowledge. But here's the part that, where David understands that God gets me. Psalm 56, 8. And I'd encourage you to read the whole psalm. He says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. What a wonderful thing to know that the creator of the universe cares about how I feel. That his heart breaks a little bit when he sees me struggling. That his heart aches for me when he knows that things are not well for me. He, he knows me that well. But what David is intimating in all of his psalms is that it only gets to be that way when we invite him in, when we allow him 
Because that's when our relationship with God gets really strong because we know that he knows us. Our fears, our worries, our sorrows. God knows all of these anyway, but he wants us to trust him with that information so that when maybe when we don't even share it with our wife of 38 years, we can go to him and say, here's, here's how I'm really doing. I'm, not, I'm just not comfortable yet willing to admit that I struggle with this or that this is a problem, but Lord, I need you to know this. In fact, in Psalm 139, the last couple of verses, David actually is openly declaring for God to show him what he sees. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Or another translation says, lead me in a more sustainable way. If you read the words at face value, it sounds like he's saying, God, I, you know, search me so that you can know this stuff about me. David knows that God already knows this stuff. What he's really saying in, in, his, in his very artistic way with these lyrics to this worship song is, God, I want you to look inside of me and show me all the stuff that you know that I don't know. Because only when that happens can I actually open my heart fully so that we can explore this together, so that we can work on it together, so that you can change me just by me being in your presence. When we love God that much and we trust him that much, then we have to spend time with him. That's the only way we're going to develop that relationship. My, uh, my, my sister, who I said, is a missionary over in Poland, she, uh, she always tells me, Peter, if you're preaching, unless you give the people a challenge or something to do, your preaching's useless. So according to my sister, I've got to give you something to do. So here's what I'm going to get you to do. Um, if you want to strengthen your relationship with God, you need to spend more time with him in prayer. Just talk to him, but also listen. Talk to him and say, here's what's going on inside of me, but then listen to what's going on inside of him. Listen to what's on his heart, what's on his mind. Read his word. If you want to know what God thinks, crack open a Bible. It tells you exactly what God thinks. And it will lead you to understanding him a whole lot better. And spend time serving other people in his spirit. Not because you feel it's something you have to do. Not out of some sense of misplaced obligation or responsibility. But serve other people just out of his love. I tried doing that for years and years and years. And I actually ended up with a, having a breakdown about 20 years ago because I was trying to serve people out of my own strength and not out of the love. It became obligatory. It became a responsibility, and that wears you down, and that exhausts you, and that's what leads to burnout. Thing, things turned around with God's help. It took me about three years to come through that, but with God's help, he has rebuilt me from the inside out. I have a much stronger engine in here now. I kind of look the same as I did 20 years ago, but on the inside, there's a much better engine I'm much more sustainable now because we have a relationship. Is it perfect? No, I'm a work in progress. But what I do understand, especially in the context of this passage, is what Jesus is saying here. You've not spent time with, with me in my presence so that I can transform you. You've been more interested in doing for me than in being with me. That's what he told me 20 years ago. And I know that some of you here have heard me say this before, and I'm okay if you think that I am a broken record because this record needs to keep playing until it pierces through your confusion and gets to the heart of what may actually be not working inside of you. And that is that our doing must come out of our being with him and our loving of him. Remember, he created us as human beings, not as human doings. The doing is great. The doing is essential. 
but only if it comes out of the time we spend with him. From that one lesson in foot washing, we learn that unless we allow Jesus to serve us completely, he can't have any part with us. And he desires the relationship. He wants us to desire to be with him. That only comes through complete surrender, submission, and sacrifice. You say, well, this is hard. Well, don't think of what it's going to look like down the road. Just start off by having the relationship with him. And you say, I, I don't know how to do that. Great. I didn't at one point in the past either. But just follow his lead. That's why he says, follow me, because he will show you exactly how to do that. When you get to heaven, don't expect to uh, show up there and, and think that you can flash, you know, either of these and say, well, you know what? I, you should let me in because I know Robert Borden. Yeah, that's not going to work. Don't get to heaven and start throwing around some big names and saying, well, you know what? I know, uh, I know Kim Kardashian. Yeah, good luck with that. I know Bill Gates. You're not even going to get in if you say, I know Pastor Greg Nicholson. <laughs> We're going to erase that on the tape, right? Here's the, here's the shocking thing for some Christians. We won't even get in if we say, I know Jesus. We're going to get in when Jesus himself welcomes us and says, come on in. I know you. Let's go to God. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the fact that you loved us enough to create a possibility for us to have a relationship with you. Your, your power, your wisdom, your, your, everything about you is infinite and is beyond our understanding. In particular, Father, why you would even care about us. That just is beyond, beyond something we can even fathom. But we thank you. And we thank you that you found a way for us to get past our own sinfulness by your love, your grace, and your mercy. You created the path for us to have that eternal relationship with you. And Father, we look forward to that day when we meet you and we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we know right now that that will only happen by us beginning to follow Jesus and having a relationship with him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.